0: Good morning to you and welcome to Christ the King. Great to be with you this morning for worship's real joy to be uh, worshiping together with you. My name is Clay Holland, one of the pastors here at Christ the King, and we are taking a little bit of a hiatus this week from our series on Ephesians that will be wrapping up this summer uh, before John Trapp starts his new sermon series, kind of leading us into the late summer and the fall. Because this morning we are uh, installing and ordaining some new officers at Christ the King. Rob Hayes as an elder, uh, Mike Stevekin and Ariane Vogt are being installed as deacons. And that gives us an opportunity to kind of reflect for just a few minutes on the nature of servant leadership in the church. What does the Bible say about leadership in the church and it's not only applicable to pastors or to elders or to deacons it's really applicable to anybody that serves in any capacity in, in, in any um, church or any kind of a organization like that so you could be a, an usher or a greeter or teaching you know five-year-old Sunday school or simply just trying to figure out how to interact with your non-Christian neighbors and friends uh, and the place that we're going to turn to look at that this morning is Paul's letter to uh, the Corinthians, his first one, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So it's a a short passage. If you have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to turn to it now. It'll also be up on the screen. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers... of God, the word of the Lord. Thanks, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you uh, that you are the wisdom of God and the power of God, incarnate. and we pray that we would have ears to hear your instruction this morning, Father, and eyes to see what it is that you would have us to see from your word. and we ask this in your most holy name. Amen. Well, tell me if this has ever happened to you. I have the seeking suspicion that this might not have ever happened to you, but this happens to me a lot, and it might just be because i 'm awkward. but I also spend a lot of times in restaurants a lot of time in restaurants and coffee shops just because of what I do for a living but you know, there's, there have been times in my 21 years of ministry where I've been in a restaurant or I've been in a coffee shop, I've been talking to somebody, I've been sitting at a chair facing the door, and somebody will come into the door of that restaurant, and they'll look right at me, and they'll smile, you know, and then I start to think, okay, I know that Christ the King is not the biggest church in Houston, it's, but it's bigger then I would have the capacity to know everybody's name or even maybe somebody that I haven't seen before. And so I'll start to panic a little bit, like I think I'm supposed to know this person, you know? And so then they start walking toward me and I'll, so I'll, they'll start walking toward me so I will smile at them. And then when they get close enough, like in sort of, you know, voice territory, I'll just say, hey, how are you? And then they'll keep walking right past me because they weren't looking and smiling at me at all. They were looking and smiling at the person that was behind me. And all of a sudden, and the weird thing about this is that all of a sudden, this twinge of shame, it's a very small thing. It's a little minute, embar- it's a micro embarrassment, right? It's, it's very, very small. But for some reason, I'll think, gosh, I just got rejected, and I'll feel this like, little twinge of shame in my heart. This is weird, right? But why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because I'm a human being. And we're all human beings. And as human beings, what do we long for? We long for acceptance. We long for people to think well of us. We don't like making mistakes, right? We don't like doing the wrong thing. We don't like embarrassing ourselves in front of other people. Deep down, we all crave approval and affirmation. It's just kind of who we are. And as pastors, particularly a particular vocational hazard is that we want to feel competent, like, right? We, we want people to feel like we know what we're doing. There's really nothing new about that. It does seem from the book of 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian church had been re-examining Paul as a qualified and as an apostle that they can trust. The the story of the church in Corinth was that the apostle Paul came to them and he preached the gospel to them and then he remained with them for some time. But Paul was a missionary, so he left and he went to other places. And then other people came in behind him to teach and they were all teaching the same message. But the Corinthian church was like, hey, I like you better. You're, you're, You're better looking than Paul. Hey, you speak better than Paul. You're more eloquent than Paul. Maybe this guy's a clown. Maybe I'll follow you. And so the church in Corinthians was in danger of falling and crumbling because of a cult of personality. That is why Paul writes these words. They had essentially been given the apostle Paul a retroactive spiritual gifts test and say, Paul, you really don't measure up. You don't measure up to these other teachers. And so in 1 Corinthians 2, instead of defending himself against all of these charges, what Paul basically says is this, you're right. With the criteria that you are using, I don't measure up. Because when I was around you, I was none of those things but there's a reason for that Paul says there's a reason because Paul knew something that is vital for all of us to know whether you're a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a five-year-old Sunday school teacher or a preschool teacher or a usher or a deacon or just somebody wanting to be faithful to Jesus in your neighborhood is that God alone transforms people it's the power of God alone that transforms people. So like Paul, we need to resolve to reduce ourselves to know Christ and him crucified. To know Christ and him crucified. Now I'm using the word know uh, in this sermon the way that the Bible uses it very often and the way that Paul knows, says it here. So when he said to know Christ and him crucified, he didn't only mean that he had like a, an intellectual assent to some doctrine. To know in the Bible is to own. It's as much as to be and to do as it is to have an intellectual grasp of something. So to know something is to kind of have this full-orbed sense of something that you live out of it and you lean into it. And so these are the things that Paul would call us to know. To resolve to know simplicity over worldly wisdom. To resolve to know weakness over strength. And to resolve to know incarnation over fear. Simplicity over worldly wisdom, weakness over strength, incarnation over fear. So first, Paul calls us to resolve to know simplicity over worldly wisdom. Now, the first thing that we really need to do is we need to understand why Paul uses the word wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and seems to uh, speak negatively of it. Doesn't the Bible commend wisdom? Isn't that what Proverbs is all about? Doesn't James say, if any of you lack wisdom, then ask God? Well, the reason why is because Paul is using wisdom, not the way that the Bible uses it, Paul is using the word wisdom the way that the people in Corinth would have understood it. You know, Corinth was a a major intellectual city in the Greco-Roman world. And so when they used the word wisdom, what they meant by that was something very technical and, and pointed. It was called sophistry. The word wisdom really points to sophistry in the first century AD. And sophistry is a part of Hellenistic philosophy that really had to do uh, with polished rhetoric, with persuasive arguments, with emotional appeals. It had nothing to do whatsoever with the truth claims behind those appeals. It was simply about how well it was that you presented a message and how persuasive you were. And so, paul and then as he says in in chapter one apollos and peter and even jesus were being judged through the lens of their ability to persuade they were being uh they were, the, the, the the corinthian church was figuring out who they were most attracted to rhetorically and they were saying that's my guy i'm with him That's what they were doing. Even though all of these people were ambassadors of the same gospel and they were speaking the same message, they were being attracted to the people that they thought presented it the best. And that's why through the grid of sophistry, Paul was found lacking. He admits in verses 1 and and 4 that he did not come to them with that kind of wisdom. Rather, he chose the simplicity of one basic message, Christ and him crucified. And he refused to deviate from it. So why would he call us also to know simplicity over wisdom? Well, the first reason is because this kind of wisdom, this worldly wisdom breeds idolatry. This is undoubtedly true. It is undoubtedly true that if you build your faith on another human being, that faith is by definition on not only shaky ground, but a broken foundation. It cannot rest there. This harkens back to chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, 13, where the church was divided over personalities. Paul was getting reports that people in the Corinthian church were saying, I follow Paul, he's my leader. Others were saying, I follow Apollos, he's my leader. Others were saying, I follow Cephas, you know, he's my leader. And then the trump card of all trump cards, I follow Christ. And Paul's like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Can Paul be, can, can Paul be crucified for you? Can, are you baptized into the name of Paul? Of course, not. Now, there is, of course, a, a modern version of this, and, and social media makes this a very viable, modern version of this, a lot of people. A lot of people put their faith and their trust in human beings, in human leaders, in human teachers. You know I follow Keller. I follow Piper, I follow MacArthur, you know, and and, and it's sort of the same question can be asked, you know. Was Tim crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of John? No, of course not. But if you build your own faith around the message of another human being, what you're doing is you're promoting the same form of sophistry that leads to idolatry that was the key struggle of the Corinthian church, If your faith rests in any human being, it will fail you. Why? Because that human being is going to fail. Not maybe. They are going to fail. Any human being is going to disappoint you. They may actually hurt you. But they will fail at some point. Why? Because they are a human being. That's why our faith must rest in Christ alone. Now, so the alternative to that is to choose simplicity because simplicity exalts God. As verse five says, one's faith must rest in God alone. And the power of God is based upon that simple message. It's it's the message that the church has been repeating for centuries that we still say here at Christ the King every time that we come to the Lord's table. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. My challenge to you is the same as my challenge to me. It's a challenge to all of us. Is that we, as we interact with our friends and our neighbors, we dare to be simple. We dare to be simple. To refuse to be co-opted into any cult of personality that would be prevalent in the church. You know, it's true that we sometimes overcomplicate things. We do live in a complicated world. Y'all know that. I mean, this is a complicated world. There is a lot of stuff coming at us all the time and in all kinds of different ways. But because we live in a complicated world, we think that we have to be probably overqualified to have any semblance of interacting with people about the Bible or about Christ or about God. We start to feel like, that because we live in 21st century America, that we have to be an expert in science, Or we have to be an expert in political philosophy or we have to be an expert in cultural theories or we have to be, you know, an expert in all, in in philosophy. We have to know all of these things in order to have kind of any presence with our friends and neighbors and talk to them about Christ. You quickly feel disqualified because you're spending way more time sitting on the floor of your house reading, you know, Mr. Brown can move, can you, if that's still a thing, but, but you're not reading like, you know, commentaries on Romans and, you know, giant philosophical tomes. But Paul's message was very simple. His message was very simple. This is how he wrote it to Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. If you can actually say those words in full honesty and meet it, Mean it, that is all the qualification that you need to interact with your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members about your experience with Christ. What do you believe? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and this part's important, of whom I am the worst. That's the simple message of the gospel. Dare to be simple. That's the first principle, to resolve to know simplicity over wisdom. The second is to resolve to know weakness over strength. The first resolution was about the content of the message. Uh, The second is about the constitution of the messenger. Because just as an overly simple message was rejected by the standards of sophistry in the first century, so was uh, a a non-eloquent speaker rejected in that culture as well. So why does Paul say then that this is an important principle? The first is this, because self-reliance kills reliance upon God. Self-reliance kills reliance upon God. If you come into any, any ministry or any avenue of service, whether that's being a vocational pastor, whether that's being a deacon or an elder in the church, whether that's being a small group leader, or that's being an usher or a deacon, or that's serving in the nursery, it doesn't matter. Wherever it is that you are, if you come into that uh, arena and you think to yourself, I got this thing. I'm sufficient for this task. Well, you're begging for the death of that ministry, either a quick and brutal one or a slow and painful one. We know this theologically. We know that the Bible tells us all the time not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on God, to to lean into our union with Christ. But as human beings, it is our proclivity to lean into our competence and our ability to be successful and to succeed. But the problem is that when we're self-reliant, we're really drinking from a poison well. It looks like there's water in there, but that water is not actually going to nourish us. And we drink from self-reliance only at our own peril. But is there an alternative? And of course there is. It involves self-sacrifice. And self-sacrifice necessitates reliance upon God. There was a purpose behind Paul's weakness. And he points it out in verse 5. He didn't want anyone to look to him as their savior. He wasn't sufficient for that task. He can't save them. Only God alone saves. So he stayed on in Corinth in fear and in trembling, and in weakness. It's funny to me, you know, because, you know, if the Apostle Paul had been kind of like evaluated maybe by like church planting assessment teams or something in Corinth, they might have said, hey, I don't really think you're called to ministry. You know, you might want to think about doing something else. This is the one who Jesus like literally plucked and said, nope, you're coming with me. You're an apostle, Paul. Uh, But he was with them in fear And in weakness. And and this was not just hyperbole. Paul writes in other places in the Old Testament about what those things actually meant. That he was arrested multiple times. That he was beaten multiple times. That he was beaten with a lash. That one time he had to be lowered over the wall of the city so as not to be killed. I mean, this was the reality of Paul's actual life. Now, I'm not advising that any of us go look for suffering. We don't have to look for it. It's going to find us. But I am saying what I think Paul is saying, that we're called to consciously and ruthlessly beat down our propensity to exalt ourselves and rely on our strength. It's like a game of whack-a-mole. It just comes up in our hearts all the time. We don't even want it to. It just pops up. And and, and what Paul's saying is when it pops up, beat it down. Go to the Lord. Confess that. Go to prayer. So what are some of those moles that kind of pop up in our hearts? Well, one of those things, I think, is the definition of what it means to be gifted for a role in ministry or really for anything. You know, I've kind of looked into this a little bit. I haven't looked into this a ton, so I might be wrong here. But so far on my cursory observation, I haven't seen the Bible use the word gifted with a capital G as like an object, like a, like a descriptive ad, adjective, like that person is really gifted. The same way we would say that person is really tall or that person is really short or that person has really blonde hair or that person has really dark hair. The Bible doesn't use, the Bible talks about gifts for ministry that were distributed according to God's will and each one has uh, uh, individual gifts and putting all of those together in the body of Christ makes the body of Christ actually function in its unity and diversity but it doesn't talk about people standing out with a capital G gifted. The truth is that we're all called to be defined by something else, not our strengths or our weaknesses. We're called to be defined by our union with Christ. So Paul, when he talks to Timothy, Timothy who was a pastor... And Timothy did not believe that he was gifted for ministry. Timothy didn't want to do it. So what does Paul have to write him? Don't be scared, Timothy. You're called to do this because the elders laid their hands on you and they ordained you to this task. So be brave, be bold, walk into this ministry, even if you don't think you're qualified for it. Early on in the early part of the church, one of the very early bishops of the church was a guy named Athanasius. Athanasius got a hint that the people were going to make him bishop. And Athanasius did not want to be the bishop. So do you know what he did? He ran away and he went hiding in caves until the church went and found him and grabbed him and drug him back and held him down and ordained him. Athanasius was like, you got to be crazy to want to do this job. I don't want to do this job. And they said, well, you're doing this job. So, so this, this, they're, they're, this, this entering into these roles uh, with, with weakness and not strength a second and related admonition is to be willing to take a low position and to serve in relative obscurity. Leadership means many different things to many different people, but one thing that it does not mean is aspiring to a high profile because if we aspire to a high profile, whether it's you know, hey, I'll be in the nursery, you know, if you'll promote me to second grade next year, and then if you'll promote me to you know, you know, to code forty-five or or, or whatever, or, or I'll I'll serve in this church, and then maybe I'll serve in this church, and then maybe I'll you know, be the pastor of a really much larger church. Because those things tempt us too much, or tempt people too much, to use, to use um, positions or to use roles as stepping stones. And in the context of a church, if you use a role, you're using a place, and that place is comprised of people. So at the end of the day, what you're actually doing is that you're using people uh, to satisfy and accomplish your own ends and agenda. And nothing could be more antithetical to the gospel than that. So why do I say that? Why this call to know simplicity over wisdom, to know weakness over strength, really kind of all kind of lays on the last point, which is to know incarnation over fear. Fear means that we run away from people and run away from situations that are difficult. A great word for this that I think I might've just made up would have been excarnation rather than incarnation because incarnation Literally means in the flesh. Incarnation uh, in this context means going into the pain, going into the hurt, going into the mess, going into the hopes, going into the fears of other people. Excarnation means stepping away from those things and trying to manage it from a, a, a distance. Incarnation is really hard. Corinth as a city in the first century, was nothing if it was not a mess. Corinth was a complete mess. And the church in Corinth was also a mess. Just read the whole rest of First and 2 Corinthians. And the, but, but here's the thing. Every single church that's ever come past Corinth in, in, in any part of the world, including this one, including this church, is also a mess. This is a mess. Every church is a mess. It's gonna be a mess until Jesus comes back and roots out and defeats sin fully but even as messy and as painful as the church in Corinth was Paul is using the words of incarnation all the time here verse one I came to you brothers verse two I was among you verse three I was with you and there's nothing in this for him but pain and hurt and danger because to incarnate yourself a bunch a bunch of hurting people is to open yourself up to, to pain. It's to open yourself up to suffering. It's also to open yourself up to misunderstanding. To, uh, it's, it, to, to, uh, it's, it's to open yourself up to all kinds of hard things. So how did Paul bear this? How did he not just unleash a tirade against this church that was overtly rejecting his leadership even though he was literally an apostle? he did it because he knew this he didn't invent the concept of incarnation incarnation was not his idea incarnation is god's idea incarnation is god's plan of salvation the apostle john said the word jesus the word became flesh and dwelt among us incarnation means in the flesh Jesus really did this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And nobody suffered more pain. Nobody. Nobody suffered more misunderstanding. Literally nobody. Nobody suffered more humiliation than Jesus. But he doesn't only say, follow me in this path. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you because my yoke is light. My burden is easy. If you unite yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, you, enlighten, you unite yourself to the incarnate God himself, the one who calls us to be his representatives in the world, to serve in his church and outside of his church, to know simplicity over worldly wisdom, to know weakness over strength, to know incarnation over fear, not in our own strength or in our own power, but in the strength and the power of the one who was first incarnate for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for not remaining aloof and away and apart, but for coming down, incarnating yourself, taking on human flesh, even to the point of going to death on a cross. We pray not only that we would be motivated in this to represent you, but that we would be truly and really strengthened to do that by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.